Welcome, everyone, to the Feast of Tabernacles 2023. How wonderful it is to gather here together on this opening evening of the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know about you, but I find this evening very special every year. There's electricity in the air, as it were, as we're seeing old friends, meeting new people, and we're anticipating what is to come. Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong often began a holy day, especially at the Feast of Tabernacles, but other holy days, by asking a very simple four-word question. Why are we here? And I can remember him booming that question out to the audience time and time again as he began a holy day service. And that question is as relevant today as it ever was. Someday soon, how soon that will be, we don't know. But someday soon, we will see Mr. Armstrong again. But we'll see all of the apostles, all of the prophets of old, the people such as Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we'll all be together keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. And we'll be together for a lot of other reasons as well. But more so, we will see the one who gave his life for us that we might be a part of his family and his kingdom, Jesus the Christ. He'll be there. And there's a very encouraging scripture in 1 John, the third chapter, and verses 1 and 3, or 1 through 3. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. What an absolutely wonderful truth that we can become the children of God. And we're children of God right now because we have been begotten by God's Spirit. His Spirit has united with our spirit, making us a new creature. And it's like a mother carrying a child within her. And the mother and the father look at that child as our child, our baby. And sometimes talk or sing to the child, even though it's in the womb, and uh, supposedly he's able to hear or she's able to hear. But they look at that as their son or their daughter. Uh, sometimes they know what the sex of the child will be in advance. And God is looking forward to us being born into his very family. But right now we're begotten. We're in the womb, so to speak, at this time. He says, Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. Yes, in the womb, as it were. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Wow. Think about that. Whatever Christ is like right now as a spirit being, a powerful spirit being, you and I are going to be that way as well. We're going to be like him. And as he says here, it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We'll be able to see him without dying, looking on a powerful, glorified being. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This hope ought to drive us to our needs, to be close to God, to study his word, to do everything we can to be more like him because we recognize what an incredible calling we've been given, what an opportunity how spectacular that's going to be. We can only imagine what that first opening night service will be like when Christ returns. There are going to be delegates from all over the world. 
And they're going to be coming together to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So what is it going to be like? Would it not be something if Christ, who inspires his servants, and perhaps was the one that caused Mr. Armstrong to ask that question, I actually I have little doubt about that, he inspires us, to ask the question, why are we here? Wouldn't it be interesting if that's the question that is asked on that opening night for all the people from around the world? And what, a, what more relevant question could there possibly be? You've come here. We commanded you come. You came. Why are you now here? What is this all about? And that's going to be, no doubt, a question that is going to be asked either directly or uh, in part in an indirect way. So why are we here, brethren? Why are we not somewhere else? We could be a lot of different places in the world right now, but we are here, wherever that here is, for you keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. These are questions that need to be answered. And I'm going to do so in the remainder of this message as we begin the Feast of Tabernacles 2023. We're instructed by command and by example to be here. By command, such as we read of in Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter. We'll turn back there, and I'm sure that you've had this read even leading up to the feast. And during the feast, it will probably be read a time or two as well. But here in verse 22... It says, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. Now, we make the assumption that that's what you've done. You've saved up a festival tithe. Now, if we're going to obey God, that's part of his commands. Not just to be here, but to finance the Feast of Tabernacles his way, as opposed to the way that we might choose, of putting everything on credit cards and then having to pay it off out of uh, next month's grocery money. It's okay to use credit cards, but it should be that it's in the bank, as it were, saved up for this occasion. And I hope that all of you will uh, certainly take that as a serious command and do so. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. And, and how does God choose a place? Well, he uses his ministry. Uh, before it was the priest. Now it's the ministry, the New Testament ministry. It is, is where God has chosen to place his name. And we can't all fit in Jerusalem at the same time, as the world won't even be able to. But delegates will go up there. But the rest of the world will learn to keep the Feast of Tabernacles someplace at that time during the millennium. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he, to make, where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstlings of your herds and your flocks. So notice that God tells us to save this up, but then he says, you enjoy it. It's for you to enjoy, but it is God's tithe because he is the one that commands us to do it. It's holy to him and is to be used for his purpose. And his purpose is so that you can enjoy this feast and help others to enjoy it as well. But here's the key to the verse here, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. That's why we're here, to learn, to fear, to respect, come to understand God's way of life. We are all just a little bit rich during this time if we've saved up our our tithe faithfully, because no matter what your income is, you have more to spend during this short period of time than you have at any other time during the year. And so each of us is a little bit rich, and God is able to see, okay, 
how is this person going to handle this wealth that he has been given at this time? And he finds out whether we're going to be selfish, having the attitude of, well, this is my time, I'm going to go here and I'm going to do this and nobody's going to get in my way. In fact, get out of my way because as soon as service is over, I'm heading out to do what I want to do. God finds out a lot about us in different circumstances and he learns, he learns about what we're going to do when we have a little bit more. And I have to confess that when I first came into the church, I didn't fully comprehend God's way of life. And yes, I was going to have steak, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'd never had that before. And so I was going to really enjoy it. He said we could have all these things, and so that's what I'm going to do. And I realized about halfway through the feast, this is not working out very well. The body is not intended to eat that much meat, at least for most of us. Uh, the the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition ate somewhere between 8 and 10 pounds of meat a day. That's about all they had. But you and I are not working as hard as they, they were working. And uh, so we, ha- we have to make choices. We have to make decisions. And, and I had to come to realize that it, the things that I wanted to do maybe weren't the most important things. And, and oftentimes I found that when I went out to serve someone else, maybe not with the, the greatest of attitude, but I just knew, well, maybe I'm supposed to do this. I, I did it. And those were the, the enjoyable times that I did not expect. And they were the highlights of the feast oftentimes, as opposed to things that I thought would be the highlights of my feast. So that's a learning experience. And that's what we come here to do, to learn to fear the Lord our God always, to have that outgoing concern for other people. Yes, to enjoy the fruits of our labor, but also to share with others in those fruits. And then he tells us to turn it into money if it's too far and and you have these physical goods. But he says in verse 26, you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink. For whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the eternal your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. That's why you have your children here with you, because they are to rejoice as well. And I think most of our young people really look forward to the Feast of Tabernacles because they get to do some things that they otherwise would not be able to do. And they are physical, and they're looking at physical things, but they, too, must learn to share with others and maybe invite a friend to dinner with them or invite a friend to a picnic or some other activity to be able to enjoy it as well. So we want to teach our children to have outgoing concern because that is the way to true happiness. It is not just whatever I want. Uh, that's not the, the, the way to happiness. It's to share and to bring other people into the whole picture here. So hopefully they will do that. And we are to uh, uh, share with others, as it says there, not forsake the Levites within your gates, but uh, share with those who have less, the widows, the fatherless, and perhaps new people that haven't had time to save up as much second tithe, and those individuals that might be a little bit more lonely uh, as as uh, the case may be. So that's a command. But let us notice that we also keep this because of the the example that has been given to us. For example, in John, the seventh chapter, we read that Jesus 
kept the Feast of Tabernacles even under the threat of death. You can read that beginning in verse 1 of John the 7th chapter. It says here, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for He did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill Him. That's a good reason to stay out of town. And then John, writing at the end of the first century, makes it very clear for both Jews and Gentiles uh, where you're going to find the Feast of Tabernacles because, remember, they didn't all have a Bible as we have it today. They didn't all have a scroll of the whole uh, of Scripture at that time. And so when things were read to them, they uh, they had to be uh, clarified. And so uh, John writes here, Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And then he, we find that his brothers did not, they said, Go up to the feast. Uh, we know you want to be seen of others. We know you want to be somebody. So you go up to the feast and you and your disciples and uh, you can be known up there. It says for verse 5, even his brothers did not believe in him. But remember, after the resurrection, James, his half-brother, and Jude, his half-brother, that wrote those epistles or letters, uh, uh, we find they were believers. They, they understood that he was resurrected. They were not deceived by that. They knew this was their brother that had been resurrected. And so we read here that at this time, though, they didn't, believe that he was uh, who he was. And so it says, you go up, verse 8, you go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But notice, verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. So he told them, he commanded them, you go up to this feast. And then he went up, and he went up secretly at first, but as we read through this chapter, we find out that he made himself known in the middle of the feast when there were a lot of people around, and it would be very difficult for the authorities to then take him into custody. And then we find in verse 37 that he kept the last great day, that eighth day, the last great day. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Now, I won't go into this this verse and those that follow, but we have a hint here of what this last great day is all about when God is going to open up His Spirit, His mind, His way of life to all of humanity. But uh, that's, that's for another day to explain all that. So we see here that Jesus, by example, shows us that we should keep the feast. In fact, if you go over to First John, the second chapter... And we read in verse 6, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So how did Jesus walk? Did he keep his own birthday? Did he keep the day that he would be resurrected? Uh, Easter, Ishtar, because that was already being kept long before Christ came along. The worship of Ishtar or Easter or Astera. Uh, this this was something that was a part of the world at that time. But he didn't keep those things, but he kept the festivals that we read of in the Scriptures. And so if we're going to walk as he walked, we're going to keep those same days. By his example, it's a command for us. 
The New Testament church observed these days. We read in 1 Corinthians 5th chapter and verses 7 and 8 where it says, For even Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. And then in verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So not only putting the physical leaven out, but we must put the spiritual leaven out, and we must then take the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth and make it a part of it. So he's telling the Gentile Corinthians there in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 8, he's telling them to keep the feast. It's a command that he gave them. We also find the example in Acts, the second chapter, where we have the beginning, the birth, as it were, of the New Testament church on the day of Pentecost, when God poured out his Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, he uh, gave them the Ten Commandments, but they didn't have the heart to obey. And so then he gave them the Holy Spirit to write the laws of God in their hearts, in their minds, not only theirs, but ours as well, to write God's law in our hearts and minds to keep the, the, the law of God. And so we see that they kept Pentecost. We can read in Acts, the 27th chapter, and verse 9, about the Day of Atonement. It speaks of it as the fast. And because the fast was already passed, now it was dangerous to sail in the Mediterranean at that time because it's very unstable at that time after the fast. And if you didn't know when the fast was, and all the authorities recognize it's talking about the Day of Atonement, if you didn't know when it was, this would be a meaningless statement. It'd be like me saying, well, after Chinese New Year, this happened. Well, how many of us know when Chinese New Year is? Some perhaps, but probably I, I dare say that the majority of us in this room do not know when the Chinese New Year is. So why would I use that as a marker of time? And yet all through the book of Acts, much of it written about the Gentiles, we see that Luke then uses Pentecost and the Day of Atonement and other festivals as markers of time. So we see that the New Testament church observed these days, and so we have both command and we have example, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Now, despite these examples, this world's Christianity rejects God's festivals as being old covenant and done away. And so we might ask the question, why is that? Why do they reject them? Well, Romans, the eighth chapter, in verse 7 tells us that the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. But it goes on to say that, that we are not carnal, if so be that the Spirit of God is in us. And if we have not the Spirit of Christ, we're none of His. So while the world is filled with carnality, and we were once part of that, uh, we weren't all uh, perfect uh, from the womb, we all made our mistakes. We all did certain things. And, and some of us who did not grow up in the truth kept all these pagan holidays. And we, we didn't even know the, the days that God tells us to keep. That was foreign. I never heard of the Feast of Tabernacles. I think I heard Pentecost. And I may have heard Passover. But the Days of Unleavened Bread, that was all away from me. It was not part of my vocabulary, not part of my knowledge or understanding. 
So we were a part of that. But now God has called us to a different way of life. And so why is, does the world not understand this? Well, that carnal mind is hostility to the laws of God, oftentimes very passively. Well, this is not how I see it. It's not in God's face of, I, you know, I hate your days, I'm not going to keep them, and, uh, you know, cursing God or something like that. It's just we passively rebelled against God. And so we see that uh, the world fails, and they recognize, they do not recognize that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, because he told ancient Israel to keep these days. And then Christ comes, and the world says, well, he did away with all those things. We don't have to do it anymore. And then we get to the 14th chapter of Zechariah, which we'll get to in a, in a moment or so, and he says, if you don't come up to keep this feast, I'm going to cut off your rain supply. So that's saying that Christ is fickle. He says, you have to do this. No, you don't have to do it. In fact, you might be trying to save yourself by your works if you do it. But then comes along uh, his second coming, and he says that we have to keep it again. That's not being the same yesterday, today, and forever. The world just doesn't understand that. In Second Corinthians, the... Third chapter, Second Corinthians three. I'm sorry, Second Corinthians four. Second Corinthians four and verse three. It says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe that lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So here we see that there is a God of this age. And that's a truth that you and I understand. We take for granted. But that's not something the world understands. Remember some years ago when there was a famine in, in uh, East Africa, you had all these celebrities that got together and sang, We Are the World. And a very catchy tune that they had. I won't try to sing it. But remember how that was? That we are the world? Well, yes, they are the world. It doesn't mean that everything the world does is wrong because we imbibe of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's a mixture of good and evil. But the God of this age is not God the Father or Jesus Christ. Now, yes, they have authority over everything, and they do intervene from time to time in the affairs of this world, but... We have to recognize that, that God allowed Satan to be to remain on this earth. He had a throne on this earth. He remains here. And he is the one that is guiding the course of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, as it says there in Ephesians 2 and verse 2. And so this is what we're dealing with in this world. But the debates... And the blindness will soon come to an end. How soon? We can't say. But we're not talking a hundred years off. I think that all the signs would indicate that this world will not last another hundred years. In fact, won't even come close to that. But beyond that, I'm not going to try to define things because we can make a lot of mistakes when we start defining it uh, too, too carefully. But let's go over to Zechariah the 14th chapter, and you'll no doubt have this read at other times during this feast, but in Zechariah 14, it begins with the time setting, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. 
And it shows that Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth at that time. He's going to go forth and fight against the nations that come up against Jerusalem. And then in verse 4, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half will go to the north, half will go to the south. And then it talks about a river of water flowing out both to the east and to the west. Now, no doubt there's a, it's a type of God's Spirit flowing out from Jerusalem, but it makes it very clear it's in the summer, it's the winter, and it's very specific about that, and we can compare that with Ezekiel, the uh, last chapters in Ezekiel, talking about this same time frame after Christ returns. And so we recognize there's a real river there. And this has not taken place. Christ did stand on the Mount of Olives when he came his first time, but he didn't split the mountain in two. We didn't have a, a, a river going to the east and a river going to the west at that time. This is something that is yet in the future. And then it talks about this terrible battle that's going to take place there because he's going to come down and verse 9, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. So he's going to be king and they're going to come and they're going to fight against him, seeing him as an alien uh, from outer space, and the world's going to come together and fight against them, and it describes the battle of, of, of uh, at that time and what's going to happen and, and how their flesh will just literally melt away as they're standing there. And then in verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, yes, there will be survivors, and they'll go back home, and they'll tell their people what happened there. And it says that... Uh, uh, they shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And it mentions specifically a nation that has been hostile toward uh, the Jews. It says, if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 19, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So they're going to come up and they're going to be there, delegates, obviously not everybody in the world will be able to fit there in Jerusalem, but they're going to send up their delegates from their nations and they're going to come there, and they're going to be sitting there or standing, however it is, on this opening night of the Feast of Tabernacles sometime in the near future. And no doubt they'll be asked the question, why are we here? What are we doing here? God inspired Mr. Armstrong with that question, and I have little doubt that one way or the other, either in those words, perhaps a different language, however it is, that question is going to be asked and answered that first evening. The prince of the power of the air, however, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, is going to be removed. But as we observe this Feast of Tabernacles, I wonder how many of us realize just how influential that spirit being is. And, and sadly, I, I have to say that I think that some do not really comprehend that. Maybe we could say none of us fully comprehend just how 
influential that being can be. But why do I say this? You know, Mr. Armstrong used to say that half of you don't get it. And sometimes he said, I think only a, a tenth or a tithe of you get it. I don't know what the percentage is that gets it and what percentage don't, and I don't want to try to focus on any, any individuals or whatever. But I have to wonder when I see the way that some people dress uh, when you have a, a beach event at the Feast of Tabernacles and women come very scantily clad. Uh, you know, everything is, is cultural. I understand that. But when you look at spring break, for example, on television, some of the news reports of it, it's amazing how little uh, some of these women wear. And when you look at how they conduct themselves with the, the beer and the booze and, and everything that goes along with it. And sometimes I think that people come into a, a beach attitude, as it were. We sometimes see people dressed immodestly at services. And then on the other side of things, we see people that are maybe modest, but they don't dress up for God because we're coming here before our Creator. And yet they, they come in and they wear blue jeans or shorts or something. I haven't seen shorts at the services lately. I have seen it. But the fact is that, that most of us do better than that. But there are individuals every once in a while that have the attitude, nobody's going to tell me how to dress. I'm going to dress the way that I want to. God's not going to judge me. As long as my heart is right, then God is not going to judge me. Well, is our heart right when we don't recognize that we're coming before the creator of the universe, uh, the one that God used to create everything? And the one who gave his life for us, he was willing to die for us. Are we unwilling to dress up for him and to come before him appropriately? Sometimes we hear people say, well, that's just his opinion, speaking of their minister or of the church's position on something. That's just the church's position. But I know better. I've heard people say, the world is ahead of the church on this subject or that subject. Do you realize that one of the major reasons that people are abandoning Christianity, the younger generation, is because of the stance that churches have on LGBTQ plus movement. And they have a different attitude and they think, well, we just have to be accepting. We can't criticize. We can't say that anything is wrong. Well... Somebody's going to say something is wrong. If you say, well, they're wrong for that attitude, you're condemning them for, for that because they say this is wrong. We come into this world and we know nothing. And we, we, we end up someplace being who we are with a lot of things funneling into our mind, especially from school and from peers. And suddenly we think that we're the world's greatest expert on what is right and what is wrong because we have a lot of people that agree with us. You know, this is the standard right here. This is what we come before God to learn and to fear God and respect God's word and his way of life because he knows what's good for us and what is going to be make us happy in the end as opposed to things that really don't bring for happiness uh, for people who reject this word. 
Do we realize that when we were baptized, that we were bought at a price? Notice in First First uh, Peter one, First Peter the first chapter, and verse seventeen. He says, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning here in fear. In fear. What does he mean by that? Is he saying we're just to go around fearful of everything and everybody? No. He's talking about the fear of God. And that's why we're here for the Feast of Tabernacles. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Now, we weren't redeemed by the fellow down the street, by somebody out there on social media. We were not redeemed by our teachers in school or university. We were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Notice 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. 1 Corinthians 6, and I'll begin in verse 18. It says, flee sexual immorality. There are people that think, well, the church is ahead of, uh, the the world's ahead of the church on this one. Uh, We can outvote God because everybody's living together before they're married. We don't have to get married. It's just a piece of paper. And people have that attitude. He says, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Especially where people sleep with you know, more than one person, there, there's a penalty. There's a price that can be paid, and it can be a very, very heavy price. God does not want us to have to pay that price. He says, it's sinning against your own body. He said, do you not know, verse 19, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? When we were baptized, we gave ourselves over to God to use as he sees fit, as opposed to how I see it and how I want to do it. For you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. These are very clear statements. Notice over in Second Peter, Second Peter, and chapter two, and verse one. It says, "But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them." denying God who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. No, we have been bought at a price, and that price was very precious indeed. Sometimes people have the attitude, well, this is my vacation. And I understand that some of you work for a corporation or somebody else, and you only have two weeks of vacation or three weeks of vacation a year. And so you have to take your, quote, vacation time to be able to come to the feast. But there's, there's a problem with the vacation attitude toward the feast. We, need to, we really need to be able to separate that. Now, it is a change of pace. It's a wonderful time. It's the best vacation you could possibly have if you want to put it in those terms. 
because you get to go different places. Some of you go overseas someplace. You see things you've never seen before. You are there with friends. You have the money to uh, spend on good food and drink and that sort of thing and maybe a side trip here or there and other activities. I understand that. But let us never forget the reason that we are here. We would not be here for vacation except that God tells us that we need to be here and we need to really separate that out. Yes, it is my, quote, vacation time at work. That's my time off from work. But we're here for far more than that, to learn God's way of life, to learn a way of outgoing concern for other people, to learn how to enjoy the good things of life without getting drunk, without being gluttonous, and without being selfish in the way that we approach these things. And I think that we're all learning those lessons. Sometimes it takes people longer than others to learn those lessons, But those are lessons that we all have to learn. And if we haven't grown in the way that we look at the feast from the first time we came till now, if you've been around for any great length of time, there's something wrong because we all should be growing. I know that I've had to grow in my understanding of the feast and and why I'm, I'm here. And I hope that you do as well. Now, we're here to learn God's way of outgoing concern. Now, I'd like for you to imagine just for a moment what that first opening service is going to be like after Christ's return. Imagine the excitement as the family of God administers a feast. We're going to be spirit beings, and we're going to see the feast in a very different way because we're going to enjoy it on a totally different level. And we're going to be able to really look down and see what people are thinking and and appreciate the, the joy that they have. Imagine the choir that's going to be there that first time. I don't know whether it be a choir of angels or a choir of human beings, but whichever way it is, I'm sure it's going to be the, the greatest choir that has been put together for that occasion. You know, oftentimes we think of the very first feast that people keep as the Feast of Tabernacles, but when you look at the timeline there, there's probably not going to be much time for people to come up, very many people to come up to keep that feast. And that God may start with Passover and go all the way through, giving time for preparation and time for for people to be able to travel and to come and to send delegates up. Uh, the, the fact that the Feast of Tabernacles is mentioned there is because that's what it pictures there in Zechariah, the 14th chapter, the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. Now, I don't know the answer to the question, but I, I sometimes wonder... Uh, is that going to be the first one, or are we going to go through the whole cycle? But at whatever it is, whichever way it is, that first night of the Feast of Tabernacles is going to be electric, to say the least. Imagine the apprehension from those attending the Feast of Tabernacles for the first time, not really knowing, well, what are we doing here? Why? Christ has defeated all of our nations, and now we're coming up, and he's telling us we've got to come there. And and they're wondering, well, what is this all about? Why are we here? And that answer will be given to them. Imagine the excitement when they begin to understand what is happening. And imagine coming, coming to that understanding of why they are there. Nehemiah, the seventh chapter. In Nehemiah, the seventh chapter, the very last verse, 
And the last half of the verse says, When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. And then in verse 2 of chapter 8, it speaks of the first day of the seventh month. That's the Feast of Trumpets. And that's what we read of there, how Ezra and the scribes and others stood up on a platform to to read the law of God to people. Remember, they didn't have a Bible that they could just pick up like we do and, and say, okay, well, this is what this is what we're supposed to do. They didn't have that. Uh, this was, there were very few copies, very expensive, uh, very carefully copied. And the average person didn't have one. But on special occasions, it was read to them. And this was occasion when they were getting back to the truth that they had lost already after they'd come out of captivity. And so they gathered together as one man in the open square. And then we read down in verse 9, it says, And Nehemiah, uh, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, and various other ones, said, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They realized how wrong they had been. They realized that their their parents in some cases had come out of captivity because this is some years after Ezra had come and now a generation has gone by and they'd already forgotten about the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles and some of those things and now they're coming back once again to keep these days and they realized why everything had been going in the wrong direction. And when people come up for that first Feast of Tabernacles after Christ returns, they're going to see the whole world that had been devastated, and now they're going to find out why they should keep the feast and the meaning of it. And there will no doubt be, as there was here, it says, This day is holy, verse 9, to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And... So he told them to go out and eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions of those for whom nothing is prepared. In other words, think about the other person, all of those things. What a wonderful time that's going to be. There's going to be apprehension at the beginning, but as they begin to understand and they begin to enjoy the things of the Feast of Tabernacles, it's going to be a wonderful occasion. And we as spirit beings are going to look down upon them uh, from our position I don't mean look down in the sense of, of uh, in the wrong way, but we're going to be able to look down into the world and look into the minds of these people and see as the neurons connect and they begin to understand what it is that they've been missing all the time and all the deception they had from the prince of the power of the air and how he's been removed, and now they're able to to keep this feast in the way that God intended them to do so. The days are coming when the whole world will understand what God has privileged you and me to know at this time. They too will learn to fear the everlasting Creator always. And they will rejoice together in fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ and with us, as it were. So until that time, let us rejoice in God's wonderful Feast of Tabernacles 2023. Go home, get a good night's rest. Come back tomorrow for more messages, and let's learn to fear the eternal our God always as we observe the Feast of Tabernacles 2023.